Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. In 1994, a software engineer named Anu Garg started Wordsmith.org, the popular website for language lovers. And this includes his immensely popular A Word A Day email, his anagram server, where you can go to test anagrams. And to celebrate the 25th anniversary of Wordsmith.org, he conducted some worldwide contests with limericks and anagrams and pangrams. Now, you know what a pangram is. Yeah, pangrams. These are sentences that contain every letter of the alphabet, and they have to be grammatical. Right, right. So, for example, the famous one is, the quick brown fox jumps over the lazy dog. But he asked people to write an original pangram that describes an event that happened in the last 25 years, so something from science or the arts or business or politics. And I happen to be one of the judges for that contest, and I am here to tell you the winner Ooh, of boy. the pangram contest. Let's hear it. Emoji having been popularized, texts acquire wacky faces. Wow, that's pretty good. And short, too. It's short. It's just 48 letters, and uh, it makes sense, too. Yeah, it does make sense. It's yeah. hard to say, though. It's Yeah, it's tricky to say. I was lobbying for a different one, which was Watson excels at Jeopardy, quickly outbuzzing human favorites. I oh, like that Oh, that's really one. good, too. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but I'm going to share some more of those later in the show. Outstanding. And, you know, if you're a pangram coiner, if you're the kind of person who loves to mess around with words like this, we want your pangrams, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org, or let's start a conversation about pangrams on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hello, welcome to Away With Words. Hi, uh, my name is David Baker. I'm calling from Seeger High School in rural Warren County, Indiana. Well, welcome to the show, David. We are glad to have you. What's up? I was uh, attending a funeral for my grandmother in February, and um, my family all, uh, I've known them, I'm almost 50, and I've known them for so long, and they've used a lot of terms, but there was a term they used, and I've never heard it before, and I've never heard it anywhere else. And I'm very curious if you can tell me about it, uh, anything else about it. Um, the story was being told about that we're celebrating my grandmother's life and telling stories. And um, a gentleman in the story early on was had walked into a church service and was being uh, disruptive. The, the term they used was he said he was swarping down the aisle. Apparently, he had been drinking and was causing a ruckus. And the word swarp... S-W-O-R-P-I-N-G, the G is optional, swarping down the aisle. And I, I just never heard it before and wondered if there was uh, any kind of context you could help me with. Yeah, sure. Was this in Indiana? No, this was in Virginia. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense because uh, swarp, spelled either S-W-O-R-P or S-W-A-R-P, uh, is something you usually hear in the Appalachians. So okay. um, I'm really interested to hear that you heard it in exactly the way that I've read about but never heard uh, in the wild. <laughs> it comes from an old dialect term that means to strike or hit. And um, so you might talk about walking through a forest and, and brush swarping you in the face or something like that. And it can also 
be used to mean uh, to move something in a sweeping motion, like whisking a biscuit through some some honey or something on a plate. (laughs) Or, you know, somebody's dress was swarping the floor. It also means, besides uh, to to move uh, in sort of a a wriggling or or staggering, weaving kind of way, it's sometimes used specifically to refer to somebody who's, um, who's under the influence of alcohol. And engaging in, in noisy uh, behavior where their arms are all flapping around or their legs are, something like that. So that makes perfect sense that this person was, what was he, swarping down the aisle? Swarping down the aisle. And uh, she also used it, they told the story and specifically quoted my grandmother saying they were driving down a mountain at one point in the, in the winter. It was very icy. She said, we were just a sliding and a swarping all down the mountain. <laughs> Love it. That's I perfect. love it. Yeah, that, that fits perfectly with the idea of swarping, meaning um, to move erratically. Right. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. That's amazing. I oh, appreciate that. All Good right. Take care. take care, David. Bye. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is James Bell. I'm calling from Tribuco Canyon, California. Welcome. What can we do for you, James? I had a question that was, how would you spell a letter, and if it's possible. You mean like the letters of the alphabet? Yeah. How do you spell the letters of the alphabet? Any guesses? My dad told me something about, like, just the letter by itself. Sometimes, yeah. I was wondering if there was, like, a proper way to spell, like, the letter J. Uh-huh. That's a good question, and I think it's something that most people don't think about, but the answer is yes. Yeah, all of our letters, as far as I know, have at least one way to spell them. Some of them have more than one. So J is spelled like the bird, J-A-Y. Um, words like H are even more interesting to me. Do you know how to spell H? I do not. It's, it's A-I-T-C-H, at least in this country, in the United States, where we don't pronounce it as H. Some parts of the world, they say H, so they spell it H-I-T-C-H. And then, so every letter's got a way to spell it. So your name is James, so James is J-A-Y, and A is usually either just the letter A or A-Y-E, although that's pronounced I. M is E-M, and E is E-E usually, or sometimes just the letter E, and then S is E-S-S, James. Yeah. Do you want to know the other weird one besides H, at least for me, is Y, the letter Y is spelled W-Y-E, which is really unusual, isn't it? Yeah. James, what got you to wondering about all this? Most people don't think about it. Well, I was just watching this show, and I thought, I was just thinking about the alphabet and just the English language in general. Mm -hmm. And I thought about spelling the alphabet, or like spelling a certain letter. And then that got me wondering. Mm Mm-hmm. That's good. That's great. You sound like one of our listeners. I <laughs> appreciate you thinking about it, James. Yeah. All right. Well, take care of yourself, and thanks for calling. Call us again sometime, all right? All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. One of the reasons that you need to spell letters is particularly for documents where you're repeating something that someone else has said, say a, a transcription, right? Mm-hmm. So if I said to you, J-A-Y, and there was a court reporter here, what do they write down? Do they write J-A-Y? Possibly, but they more likely would spell out J-A-Y, J-A-Y, space, letter A, space, W-Y-E, to indicate that I said them as letters and not as a word. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Sometimes you indicate through capitalization, you J hyphen A hyphen Y, and that shows that I spelled mm-hmm. it out. 
but court reporters may have their own traditions and styles that they mm-hmm. do. And as I recall, also in plumbing, I mean, you can look at plumbing catalogs mm-hmm. and there will be a Y uh W-Y-E, Pipe, right? yeah, yeah, that's interesting. W-Y-E. Although you often find just like in the U-turn, you, you find yeah. you spelled it, it's spelled with a the U. The letter U, Right, yeah. to represent the shape. Uh-huh. To, and so often a Y joint or an L joint in hardware catalogs is just spelled with the letter and not the letter spelled out as a word. Right. Complicated. Uh, spelling letters is weird because it's kind of like counting numbers. <laughs> it's kind of self-referential, yeah. <laughs> self-flicking ice keep, cream cone. <laughs> you can keep spelling the letters that spell the letters that spell the letters. Oh, my gosh. And like go- the cream of wheat box, <laughs> right? It's fractal. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Welcome to Away With Words. Hi. This is Margo Dillard in Denton, Texas. Well, hi, Margo. Welcome to the show. Hey, Margo. What's up? Hello. Um... My grandmother, when I was growing up, and this was in South Alabama, always used the expression cold as Aga 40 when it was really cold outside. I've never been able to figure out what that means, where it comes from. She was from Kentucky. She was from the coal mining region of Kentucky. I assume Aga might be a mispronunciation of 18, maybe 1840 there was a blizzard or something. I don't know. Wow. Well, that's a creative uh, theory there. So how cold, <laughs> how, cold are we, how cold are we talking about? Are we talking below freezing or just a little nippy? Oh, no, below freezing. Okay. Cold. Mm-hmm. And was she a drinker? Oh, no. Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) Well, I tell you, the reason I ask is because, to me, this sounds like the term Aggie 40, which uh, is an old expression that refers to a really strong drink. It's Aggie 40 or Acker Fortis or Aki Fortis or Agger 40. And the common thread among all these terms, which are used primarily in the South or have been in the past, is that they come from the Latin aqua fortis, which means strong water. And for that reason, aqua fortis uh, morphed into uh, Aggie 40, meaning a really strong drink. And uh, aqua fortis actually comes from uh, Latin terms that literally mean strong water, but, uh-huh. but the name refers to nitric acid, which is uh, something that's used in explosives and fertilizer and dyes. But since uh, at least uh, the mid-19th century, uh, Aggie 40 has referred to a strong drink. But why would that be cold? That's a good question, unless it has to do with the extreme nature of it, you know, like a really strong drink. Or... Uh, right. It's very bracing when you take a really strong drink, right? It's kind of hard to, it's, it's, like, it's like inhaling ice cold air. <laughs> you said it's used in explosives. This stuff that's called aqua fortis originally. Nitric acid is. Yeah. Could it could it have had anything to do with coal mining? Maybe. Her grandfather owned know. a coal mine. Maybe. Huh. You know, it was also sometimes used in cosmetics, uh, creams and, and small doses. And if you, but if you put aqua fortis or nitric acid on your skin, it burns a little bit, and maybe that reminded somebody of frostbite or super cold hmm. fingers. I don't know. Hmm. That could be, but but my guess is that it has to do with the, the a really strong drink, the idea mm-hmm. of a really strong drink. But, Something that just kind of knocks you back. You yeah. knock it back, and it knocks you back, yeah. right? Yeah. Well, and it's probably something she picked up growing up in Kentucky. 
Oh, that Because I never be. heard it from anyone else in her age group. It was kind of her expression, but she was originally from Kentucky mm-hmm. and grew up in a coal mining company town. Mm-hmm. Eastern Kentucky then, huh? I guess, somewhere mm-hmm. near Corbin. Oh, yeah. Well, you know what? You're the first person to ever call us or write us about this. As far as I can remember. <laughs> or, yeah. It's, not, it's never been all that common, and it mm-hmm. seems to have faded away, and it probably could considered archaic or at least old-fashioned at this point. Mm-hmm. So it's a, it's a rare one. Margo, that's all we know about that. But if we come across okay. more, we'll send it along, all right? Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you. Okay, thanks, now. Margo. Mm-hmm. Bye-bye. Uh-huh. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. So just to recap, Aggie 40 is a corruption of aquafortis. Mm-hmm. Aquafortis is another name for nitric acid, mm-hmm. but aqua, Aggie 40 referred to strong drinks mm-hmm. often in the right. American South. Right. Okay. Yeah. I could see that being applied to cold. Yeah, because mm-hmm. cold as, the number of things yeah. that follow as in all these mm-hmm. different uh, expressions that we have, it's, uh, thousands of things come after as cold as mm-hmm. when you look at American folklore. Mm-hmm. 877-929-9673. More about what we say and why we say it as Away With Words continues. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Martha Barnett. And I'm Grant Barrett, and we're joined by John Chinesky, our quiz guy in New York City. Hi, John. Hi, Grant. Hi, Martha. Hi, John. Now, it's a pretty well-known trivia chestnut that Walt Disney considered many, many more names for Snow White's Seven Dwarfs. Did you know that? No, really? No? Is this yeah, conceit I... or is this truth? No, this is absolute. No, okay. this is absolute truth. They have notes. They have notes. Okay. I kid you not. The list includes names like Nifty, Dirty, Goopy, Wheezy, and Chesty. <laughs> there's, there's about 40 of them. Wow. Now, I, I don't even want to think about what a dwarf named Goopy would be like. <laughs> Goopy. You know, Walt wanted the dwarf's personalities to match their names, you know, like Grumpy and Happy. And looking at the list, I can see why most of these didn't make the cut. But then why stop at seven? I think Disney stopped too soon and neglected to add wordplay into the mix. For example, what about a dwarf who's very pious and contemplative Maybe one that took a vow of poverty and or silence. What would his name be? Uh, pop. Monkey? I don't know. Yeah, monkey. Oh. Right, monkey. Uh, Dopey is silent. Maybe he's monkey. I don't know. As you can see, the name also means something else. So if you can't guess the dwarf names from the following clues, I can tell you what all else it could mean. Got gotcha. Got it? Oh, all right. Okay. Now, unlike Snow White's dwarfs, none of our dwarf names are actually adjectives. 
Now, we never found out the dwarf's background, so maybe there could have been one from Southeast Europe, maybe one from around Ankara or Istanbul. Turkey. Turkey. Turkey, right. He was uh, very likely partial to large birds, and, and, or maybe he had a fleshy wattle, perhaps. Yeah. Now, we know the dwarfs were miners, but who's to say they couldn't have other jobs? Maybe one of them was an agent who would post money so that someone in pretrial detention could be released in exchange for a fee. Um, Bailey? Bailey, right, right. Yeah, you could probably find him patrolling the outer courtyard of a castle, probably. The seven dwarfs wore those sort of floppy hats, but suppose there was one that was more geometrically inclined, and he insisted that his hat be of a similar shape, but tapered smoothly to a sharp apex. What do you think? Pointy? No, not pointy. <laughs> How about teepee? Uh, not teepee, but all these are pretty good, yeah. It's the kind of headwear you might associate with uh, someone who would be called dopey. Coney? Coney, oh, yes. Coney. Oh. <laughs> yes, exactly. He may have been partial to uh, rabbits or a seaside uh, amusement park yeah. in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, okay, we're up to speed now. Good. Oh, and while Doc was very smart, and uh, you know, even Dopey still had a degree in geology, uh, there must have been at least one dwarf who didn't make the grade. You know, maybe our dwarf failed the test. Um, flunky? Flunky, yes. Oh, oh flunky. Of course, that would, that would force him to act as a henchman for more accomplished dwarfs. There we go. Uh, similarly, one of our dwarfs could have been a, uh, a stevedore or a longshoreman and distinguished himself by the tool of his trade, a piece of metal with a handle. Forklifty. <laughs> no. no. <laughs> I'm thinking a little more old-fashioned than forklifty. Um, uh, crowbar <laughs> Levery. Um, no, it's um, a curved piece of metal with a handle. Hooky. Hooky, that's him, yes. Oh. So unlike, <laughs> yeah, unlike Flunky, instead of failing, this guy just never showed up. Those are our dwarfs, guys, and that's pretty good. Well, thanks for the quiz, John. We really thanks, appreciate John. it. We'll talk to you next week. My pleasure. Talk to you then. More about language on the way, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org and talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. I haven't also ran in the pangram contest where people were trying to use every letter of the alphabet in a sentence. Ariana Grande visited a bakery, licked a glazed donut, and made an unpatriotic jejune exclamation. She was required to apologize thereafter. Wow, that's crazy. She did that. She actually did that, right? I didn't realize that, but apparently so. I just kind of like the poetry of it. Although jejune is kind of out of place there. It doesn't really match the context. Yeah. <laughs> well, they're all kind what, of What are tortured. people doing licking donuts? I guess if you can't have sweets because you're on a permanent diet for your career, I guess you, that's the most you can do, right? I don't know. Send us your pangrams, words at waywardradio.org. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Alicia. Hey, Alicia, where are you calling us from? I'm calling you from Wilmington, North Carolina. Oh, welcome. What can we do for you? What's going on there Thank on the coast? Thank you. So my father was um, raised in King, North Carolina, and whenever we would go visit his family in that area, um, for example, he might walk across the street and visit his cousin. And when he comes back to the house, my mom would say, hey, what did Dean have to allow? And he would tell her what he had to allow. <laughs> and when I mentioned that one time to my husband, or asked him that maybe when he had gone to talk to somebody or whatever, he's like, what? What is, what is allow? What do you mean? 
And I can't find anybody that's ever heard of that phrase before, but I swear I grew up with it. It makes perfect sense to me, and I just wondered. So I called y'all. We believe you, Alicia. Thank you. We do. I would okay. say that someone who hasn't heard this just hasn't read a lot of American literature. because it's, Okay, good. Uh, and that's not necessarily a, uh, an insult so much as it's a thing that you should improve if you haven't done it, because it is a term that you will find in the writings of Mark Twain and Bret Hart and... I can't even, just hundreds of authors, I'm sure, from the 1700s, 1800s, 1900s have used a form of allow, which basically means something like to say, to declare, to declaim, to claim, to state. Exactly. To, yeah, right. Okay. So you, and sometimes it's given as allow, like I'll allow, L-O-W, but it's just a, an abbreviated form of allow. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it's, All right. this goes back to the 1700s, 300 something years or so of this word. And there's some different uses of it that I won't get into here, some different substances, but generally it's about saying a thing. Sometimes it's saying it with force. Sometimes it's saying it, uh, meaning to admit, like someone says, were you on the bank on the evening of the 4th? And you'll be like, well, I'll allow that I was there, but I was not doing anything harmful, right? You allow, you gotcha. admit. But in general, it can be used right. to, to say, just I, he allowed, he allowed that the, that the dinner was good and he'd be back next Sunday. And I hear it more as uh, allowed as how. Oh, nice. My Aunt Mazo there in North Carolina would say, <laughs> oh, he allowed as how. He was 23 years old or something like that. Yeah. How is it spelled? Just like the other word, A-L-L-O-W. L-L-O-W. Okay. And conjugated the All same. Right. Yeah. I feel so vindicated. <laughs> oh, absolutely. It is primarily Southern at this point. You will sometimes hear it in the what's called the Midlands or Southern Midlands. These are the states or the parts of the country right above the American South. But... Um, mm-hmm. You, you will find it here and there in places like the Northeast and Vermont and uh, the rural speech of people in the mountains of Montana. It'll pop up now and again. That's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, good. Well, I'm going to keep using it, and I can't wait for my husband to hear this. And my kids are going to be thrilled because they're avid readers and love some of those authors that you mentioned. So, yeah, this is great. Oh, that's where wonderful. I first heard it. None of we, nobody in my family used it, even mm-hmm. though I had some... Southern folks that might, but I learned it from Mark Twain. That's where I first heard it. Well, thank you so much. Our yeah, pleasure, Lisa. Thanks, thanks, for, thanks calling. for calling. Take care. All right. You too. Thank you. All right. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. 877-929-9673. Following up on our conversation about cursive handwriting, we heard from Rachel Redju in Newport News, Virginia. And she writes, I was curious how many millennials or Gen Z people weighed in on your argument about the need to learn cursive in school. I'm 23, and I learned cursive in third grade and have never used it since. My mom uses cursive, and I can't read it because it is handwriting versus standard typed cursive, which I can still read. Additionally, when I was studying in Japan, the English teacher asked me to write my name in cursive because she was demonstrating the need to learn cursive, at the very least so we can sign our name. But the reality is, most people scribble their name or use a mix of cursive and print anymore. And truth be told, I couldn't write my whole name in cursive because I didn't remember all the letters. (laughs) (laughs) My son learned, who is now 12, learned only his name in cursive and nothing else. And he can write it very laboriously on a, you know, if he gets a check from grandma for his birthday, he can write his name on the back of that. Yeah. But um, yeah, he had no need, very much a Gen Zer, I guess, uh, no Uh need for cursive. He just Uh doesn't need it. Wow. Well, it's it's fascinating to see all these responses. But the truth is, you don't actually have to have your cursive 
for signatures. Anything can be in signature. You can make a little picture of a house. You can use block <laughs> letters. You can use an X. That all counts as a signature as long as it's consistent and as long as it means you. Is that right? It's I can true. just draw a picture? Absolutely. Well, how do you think people who use um, pictogram-based languages do it? I guess they use so It's not really pictures, but they don't do cursive, right? <laughs> um, people who sign things in Chinese or Japanese or Korean don't use cursive. They just write them the same way they would anywhere else. Hmm. I'm picturing my new signature right now. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Patrick from beautiful Bolton Landing on Lake George in the Adirondack Park in upstate New York. Oh, my goodness. You sound like you're in a very lovely place. I am. I uh, recently had the pleasure of visiting America's only plastic kazoo factory. It's in Beaufort, South Carolina. I think that's how they pronounce it. B-E-A-U-F-O-R-T, South Carolina. Wow. And uh, it was lovely. They had a little museum. Um, They had a factory tour gift shop. It was a lovely afternoon. But they had a little documentary film before the tour started. And um, they kind of just glossed over where the word kazoo even came from. So I talked to the tour guide after the tour. And I said, uh, nobody knows where kazoo came from. And uh, she goes, no, we don't know. And no one knows. And I was just a little surprised by that. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to find out. (laughs) where kazoo came from because I have some friends that are going to help me out. No pressure or anything. Sit down, Patrick. (laughs) I've got some bad news. Uh, Nobody uh knows. Nobody knows? Nobody knows. Really? No, there's guesses. There's theories. There's surmise. It's all rubbish. It should be ignored. Nobody really knows. We know when the kazoo first appeared. We know that sometimes it was called the gazoo with a G instead of a K. We know that there was another instrument that preceded it that was very similar instead of played... Um, straight out of the mouth like you smoke a cigar. It was played to the side like a flute. This was called a, a eunuch flute or a merlitone, a very okay. similar instrument. Hmm. It sounded very much the same, and that's from much okay. older than that. And we also know that there are a bunch of slang words from the 1800s about the time that the kazoo appears that sound a lot like that word, including gazook, okay. gazabo, gazebo, and gazoo. And they all just oh. kind of mean dumb person or stupid person. Oh. Um, and it's possible when you blow a kazoo that you sound dumb. <laughs> well, it does kind of have a little onomatopoeia going on right. there, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it sound, the word sounds like kazoo, you know. Mm-hmm. That's what all the dictionaries that I can find say. They basically suggest, they don't say for sure, but they suggest that it's onomatopoeic. But that's the mm-hmm. most that's known about it. I'm sorry to say, most words have that huh. story. Most, most words that are um, not obviously from Latin and Greek have uh, unknown origins. Do we know when it first appeared in print or any? I mean, how could I kind of run this down on my own? If you only have a minute, check the Oxford English Dictionary, which you can sometimes okay. get free access to through your libraries. If you have a half hour, an hour, go to one of the digital newspaper sites like newspaper.com, newspapers.com oh. or newspaperarchive.com and oh, see, okay. see how far back you can find it. You will probably not be able to find older uses than the Oxford English Dictionary has, but, but that's okay. the short version. Okay. Well, I certainly appreciate it. It was a pleasure speaking with you. Great talking with you, too, Patrick. I I have to ask, did you come away with a collection of kazoos or or a special kazoo? that? Well, well, it was love at first sight when I saw the electric kazoo. They had a a kazoo with a little pick.
pickup attached to it that I can plug into my amp here and go wild with the distortion and everything. Are you Have serious? a ball with that. Yeah, yeah. Outstanding. Oh, yes. Oh, I want to hear that. I Gee, desperately want to hear that. You have yeah. to send me an audio file of that. Yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> Please do. Yeah, that would be I great. I will. Thank you, Patrick. I had no idea. A kazoo with a pickup. Who knew? <laughs> oh, who knew, right? As soon as I saw it, it's like, I have to have that. Well, I feel a rap coming on. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. <laughs> no raps, Martha. <laughs> Patrick, thank you so much for calling. Okay, thank you. Bye. Alrighty, Take care. Bye-bye. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. I was talking earlier about judging a pangram contest where people submitted sentences that had every letter of the alphabet. And here was one that I really, really wanted to win. A quivering butterfly wing conjures a zephyr that expands to a storm. Wow, that's that beautiful. beautiful. That's a poem in itself. I know, but How you nice know is what? That? It doesn't qualify. Here's the sad part. It lacks a K. Oh, <laughs> did they not realize that when they sent it on? I guess not. You know, and can you imagine being so proud of a quivering butterfly wing conjures a zephyr that expands to a storm? How about an inky storm or something yeah, like that? Yeah, an inky <laughs> storm or a storm. Okay? <laughs> Question mark. 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, uh, my name is Robert, and I'm calling from Hamlin, West Virginia. Hello, Robert. Welcome to the show. We're glad to have you here. What's going on? Uh, Well, I have a question about a word that I used to hear a lot when I was further down south. Um, I I live in West Virginia, but I used to travel full-time with a, a gospel quartet that was based in Alabama. And I was the only guy that was not from Alabama or Georgia in the group. And uh, so sometimes we would eat somewhere or there would be a meal that was especially good. And they would say that the meal was Larapin. And the first time I asked them what this meant, they looked at me like they just couldn't believe that no one had ever heard that word. But we have never used it anywhere that I've lived. And I had never heard it before just a few years ago uh, down south. No kidding. I was curious about where it came from and, you know, how it, kind of landed in Alabama, and at least to me, uh, seemingly nowhere else. <laughs> well, you know, you usually hear it in places like Texas and Oklahoma and more toward that area. And uh, it means terrific, right, or, or striking, right? Yeah, that was that was kind of the sense I got, because it was always, I mean, if you had a good meal, they would say it was good or delicious, but it was like reserved for the best of the best. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Larapin good pie, something like that, mm-hmm. right? Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, and it comes from an old dialect term, larap, that means to beat or strike or thrash or whip. And it's uh, one of those words in English that has to do with beating or striking, but that also means something really the the best of its kind. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. It may go back to a Dutch word that means to whip, but uh, but it's I usually associate it with Oklahoma and Texas. It's interesting that uh, your friends heard it uh, where they grew up. And by dialect, you mean English dialects mm-hmm. because it was widespread throughout the minor linguistic regions of the United Kingdom, right? Mm-hmm. Yep, means to beat or strike, L-A-R-R-U-P. Except in the non-literal use, which just means more of the same or emphatic or right. very or awesome. Right. 
that's that's awesome. That's fascinating. Robert, thank you so much for your call. We really appreciate it. Hey, thank you for having me on the show. I love to listen. Thank you. Take care. Great. Thanks, Robert. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. This is a Larapin Good Place to have your questions answered, 877-929-9673, or have a whopping good time composing a huge email and send it to words at waywardradio.org. Here is another pangram that I really liked uh, that has a scientific bent. In the Kuiper Belt, Pluto is judged as dwarf planet, vexing the status quo by making size count. Wow, yeah, that's pretty good. Yeah, it makes sense. It's a long one, though. Yeah. That's part of the How problem. How many letters is that? 73. 73. You want it to be mm-hmm. brief. Yeah, but I like it. Pangrams are pretty cool. What's the shortest one you know? Do you know? Just, uh, just the alphabet song? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, yeah, that's just 26, and, right? Just, well, there's an and in there at the end, oh. and Z or and Z. <laughs> 877-929-9673. This show's about language examined through family, history, and culture. Stick around. You're listening to Away With Words, the show about language and how we use it. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. I just learned a slang term from the world of theater. It's billboarding. Do you know this term, Mm-mm, billboarding? No. When an actor billboards a word, it means he or she gives that word a special prominence. And you'll find that really good Shakespearean actors do just that when they deliver their lines. They billboard the names of people and places, especially if they're the first person in the play to say that name. They're trained to set that word apart to give it just a little extra. I learned that and many, many, many more things from the new edition of a book called Thinking Shakespeare. It's by Barry Edelstein, and he's the artistic director of the Old Globe Theater here in San Diego. And the book is based on his distinguished 30-year career as a stage director and producer. Thinking Shakespeare is a working guide for actors and directors, but really it's a great book for anybody who wants to have a better appreciation for the work of the Bard. Edelstein taught for years at Juilliard and the Public Theater in New York, and he's the best kind of educator because his book is really joyous. You know that favorite teacher, that favorite professor you had, and you just wish you could go out for a long dinner with them and and have them tell you all the reasons they love their subject so much and, and tell you little background information. He offers lots of funny asides and allusions, and he provides these useful paraphrases of what's going on in a scene. And he sets up the passages by reminding lay readers what's going on, so it's not like you come to the passages cold. And it's just so much fun reading about how he teaches actors to wring out all the juice from a single line in Shakespeare. And the way they do that is they really dig into the words. He talks about how, you know, the spectacle is fun in a play and and the action 
is interesting, but you can get that from HBO. What we go to Shakespeare for is the language, is the words. And he's forever urging actors to ask themselves, why is this character using this particular word right now? And the answers are thrilling, even if you never set foot on the stage. So that book is Thinking Shakespeare by Barry Edelstein. Well billboarded. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) We'd love to talk to you about Shakespearean words or plays or how to perform language well, 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org or talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Hi there. You have a way with words. Hi, my name is Tatiana Hemrich, and I'm calling from San Antonio, Texas. Welcome, Tatiana. What can we do for you? So I'm kind of curious. It's come up more recently, this thing that I have said, I think, my whole life. Um, I'm originally from D.C., where it didn't seem to cause too many confused looks. But here in San Antonio, I really get a, what is wrong with this person? (laughs) Um, So the phrase that I'm referring to is hairy eyeball. And so I usually use it in terms of like, you know, that person's giving me the hairy eyeball and it could be either I'm doing something they think is unusual or maybe someone is just questioning what I'm doing or they're just giving me like the New York once over, but just, you know, with the hairy eyeball (laughs) um, expression. So hairy eyeball, um, thank you for doing the Johnny Appleseed work of spreading it throughout Texas. That's important. <laughs> <laughs> but it's uh, it's been around since at least the 1960s. And what's interesting to me is that the first use that we know of in print was by Carol Burnett. She was very oh. young. She was kind of early on in her career. and She'd established herself and had a name. And she was being talked to by a gossip columnist. And she was talking about not understanding the slang of her younger sister, who was 16. And she quotes her younger sister as saying, he gave me the hairy eyeball that meant he liked her. So the hairy eyeball, at least to Carol Burnett, meant something different. It's possible, since the whole premise of this is that Carol doesn't understand her younger sister's slang, that Carol got it wrong accidentally or got it wrong on purpose. We don't really know. But now it does mean that you kind of, you're squinty-eyed at somebody. And just imagine your eyelashes kind of occluding your eyeball. They're kind of in the way. The hairy eyeball is a lot of eyelash and very little eyeball, right? Squinting oh, okay. suspiciously okay. at somebody. It pops up here and there in literature and newspapers. It's never been all that common. It's kind of a, I would call it performance slang. You use it in a knowing way because it's so evocative. It's not right. It's not throwaway slang that just is kind of casually unremarked upon. If someone says the hairy eyeball, people notice. So the hair oh, in this case is, is the eyelashes. Yeah, it's then. the eyelashes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, although <laughs> the idea of a hairy eyeball seems really gross. <laughs> <laughs> I know. The first time I heard it, I thought. And I think that's why I would get the I would get the questioning looks like hairy eyeball. I never even, you know, thought about the actual eyelashes. Uh-huh. you would get the hairy eyeball <laughs> for using the term hairy eyeball. There are a ton of eyeball-related <laughs> terms like this in cultures around the world. I'm thinking of the way that people, well, gestures. People pull their lower eyelid down. I believe yeah. we've talked about that mm-hmm. before. Buckeye. The buckeye. Mm-hmm. And there's also the stink eye, which I believe originates in Hawaii, which is very similar to the to the hairy eyeball. You give someone the stink eye, you're showing them your displeasure with a, a sharp look. Very interesting. I like the Carol Burnett reference. I am a fan of hers and used to watch her, you know, when I was younger. So Right. And yeah. she's she has eyelashes that go on for days. So I love <laughs> yeah. picturing her now now that you've brought this to our yeah. attention. Tatiana, thank you so much for calling. Thank you very much. No, thank you so Bye-bye. much. It's been quite a pleasure. Thank you. Take care. Alrighty.
Yeah, Bye-bye. Carol was 27 when she was quoted in this newspaper article. Oh, yeah. my. So she, was, she had yet to reach her heyday, but she was well on her way. She established herself early and had a reputation as the wild comedian who'd do anything just to get a great laugh. Oh, I know. So now I'm going to stop thinking about her earlobes <laughs> and start thinking about her eyelashes. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Email words at waywardradio.org. And you can talk to us on Twitter at W-A-Y-W-O-R-D. Here's a pangram that our quiz guy, John Chinesky, would love. Brexit, loved by many fans who are creating quick word puzzles just now. <laughs> That's pretty good, yeah. yeah. Every letter of the alphabet in that sentence. Brexit, loved by many fans who are creating quick word puzzles just now. You can see it, right? So Crossword you're saying puzzle the, constructors. You're saying the constructor crowd is going for yeah. Brexit. I'm just not seeing that. I'm just not picturing that as being their, their thing. Oh, good point. <laughs> 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, Martha. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Who's this and where are you? This is Patricia Keck calling from Fort Worth, Texas. Well, welcome, Patricia. What can we do for you? Well, I had a question about an expression that my husband's grandmother used that sort of mystified me. I grew up in South Texas on the border between Texas and Mexico, and Spanish was my first language. So when I married into his family, I ran across lots of expressions that I had never heard before, and one was from his grandmother. And she often would say when she didn't want to maybe perhaps answer completely um, or actually didn't know where something was, she would say, it's gone where the woodbine twineth and the whang doodle mourneth. And I really didn't know what to make of that, and in some ways still don't. Where the woodbine twineth and the whang doodle mourneth? I know. Imagine that one, <laughs> where the woodbine twineth and the whang doodle mourneth. We're going to have to break this down, but I want to tell you a little story first about, about a man named James Fisk, Jr., in 1870 or so, he and another fellow were accused of trying to embezzle millions of dollars worth of money from the U.S. government. Basically, what they were trying to do was artificially inflate the price of gold. And then they were trying to lure President Grant's administration into the scheme. And as part of that, they gave $25,000 to Mrs. Grant to spend as she wished, basically. Now, it's really complicated, and I'm oversimplifying, but that's the gist of it. And so they were called to testify. And this fellow, James Fisk, apparently was quite a character. He is described in the newspapers as delivering a profane torrent of words, and that when he was testifying, it was a broad farce or roaring comedy from beginning to end. So this guy, he was a real piece of work. And so they ask him point blank. They're like, where did the money go? What happened to the money? And he replied with what you've said, only he said a shorter version of it. He said, where the woodbine twineth. And this, this sentence was repeated in newspapers from coast to coast repeatedly over a period of weeks and months. And it kind of became like one of these catchphrases of 1870. This was just a thing that you would say to mean that something went away and I don't know where it went. And the reason that it means that is even more interesting to me because woodbine is a name that's been used for a couple different kinds of creeping vines. Even Virginia creeper, for example, which is very common in the United States, and 
will wind around a drain spout or a downspout on a house. And so where the woodbine twineth means the place where the vines wrap themselves around, and that is the spout. And it's an indirect reference to another slang term that we don't really use in English much anymore. To say that something is up the spout doesn't mean that they got pregnant, which is another version that's unrelated to this. It means that it went away. And so something goes up the spout, it means it's gone. And the reason up the spout means up the way has to do with pawnbrokers. I kid you not. Are you following all wow. this? <laughs> pawn shops. Wow. Because when you went to a pawn shop in the 1800s, they didn't store the merchandise that was being pawned on the level where you would hand it over and get some money in return. What they would do is they would send it upstairs. They'd send it into storage. And often there was a hole in the floor of the ceiling called a spout. And it had like a pulley system or a dumb waiter, or even just a bucket on a rope. But there was this, this chute or, or funnel or hole called the spout. And so when you went to the pawnbroker to try to get money for your most valuable possessions, your, your watch, your fine jacket, your good hat, whatever it was, your belongings are said to have gone up the spout. And you got very little money for them. And they're considered gone forever because if you've ever gone to a pawnbroker, even now, typically, most of the stuff that is given to a pawnbroker for a little bit of money is never redeemed by the original pawner. It's um, later sold on by the pawn shop to somebody else. It's a black hole for personal possessions. You tend not to get them back. And so this whole complicated story, the where the woodbine twineth, has to do with pawnbrokers the expression up the spout being gone, and this guy talking about vines wrapping themselves around a downspout. Well, that timing <laughs> sounds, you said about 1870, sounds just right because she was born in 1890, and her parents both used that expression. So, um, uh, you know, from Ohio and Pleasant yeah. Lake, Indiana. So mm-hmm. that was a usage that that was not uncommon in her family. Absolutely. I, I, I totally believe it. Well, but what about the Wang Doodle? It's a, it's a kind of a catch-all word for an unknown animal, either a mythical animal or one that you can identify. When you hear an animal in the bushes and you don't can't quite make out the call and you don't really know what it is, that's a Wang Doodle. Well, it'll be right there with the Jub Jub bird and the Bandersnatch and the Jabberwock. The wing doodle is in good company. Yeah, what's interesting is the where the woodbine twineth and the latter part of what you quoted, the where the wing doodle mourneth for her firstborn is the longer expression. Um, they're two separate catchphrases that later joined up to become one. The where the oh. wing doodle phrase oh. actually is older by about 20 years. Yeah, it reminds me of those uh, phrases that parents use when kids are being too inquisitive. It's sort of like there's one that goes, I'm making a, you know, a kid says, what are you doing, mom? And she says, I'm making a whim wham for a goose's bridle or a whimmy diddle or something like that. <laughs> sort of like a wang doodle. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Patricia, thank you so much for introducing the, oh, the all of our you. listeners to this, this expression. It's a fantastic one. Thank you, Grant. Thank you, Martha. All right, take care. Yeah, thanks for sharing these memories. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Well, is there a word or phrase that's been kicking around your family for a while? Call us about it, 877-929-9673. Hello, you have a way with words. Hi, this is Emily calling from Madison, Wisconsin. Hello, Emily. Welcome to the show. Hi, Emily. Thank you. What can we help with? So I have a question, and my question is whether there's a gender-neutral way to refer to nieces and nephews, um, similar to what we would have for, like, the word cousins that wouldn't necessarily imply 
uh, gender. A gender-neutral term for nieces and nephews, so kind of all together instead of saying the phrase nieces and nephews. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. And Emily, what got you wondering about this? Uh, A couple things. I have three nieces and a nephew, and I'd say in conversations, you know, describing visits and time spent together, it just always um, occurred to me, like, you know, why there wasn't such a term like cousins that didn't imply uh, male or female. And uh, another thing that I have been thinking about in this context is uh, just the way kind of our uh, society has changed in a way and whether the English language will adapt to that. So I think it's more commonplace now to hear, even at younger ages, people uh, defining themselves in non-traditional ways and, um, you know, being more commonplace maybe to define yourself as uh, transgender or gender nonconforming. And, um, you know, if we have, you know, just certain uh, definitions in the English language for male and female, um, you know, is there a way for kind of our language to adapt to what is becoming like a changing uh, societal norm, I guess. <laughs> I understand everything you're saying and agree with your description of the direction of the language, but this this pursuit of one word to describe nieces and nephews together precedes the the current movement of, of gender identity in the English language. It's uh, 50 or 60 years old, maybe even older than that. I mean, I have, I have citations from the 1940s of people proposing words for it. Yeah, and it's been this sort of, not exactly a hole in the language or a barely patched hole in the language for the last 50 or 60 years. But I, I've always, as an English speaker, been a little bit envious of other languages that, that have more specific terms for familial relationships. Um, the one that, that was proposed in, in 50 or 60 years ago um, that you sometimes here in discussions like this is the term nibblings, which is sort of a combination of niece and nephew and sibling. But um, but it's not really that satisfactory. Oh, nibblings, I was, for me, was the best one of all the ones that have been proposed that I know oh, about. Think? Yeah. Yeah. Because a nieflings is commonly proposed. Yeah, I like nieflings. And nieblings. Mm-hmm. There's that B from sibling again. Cuzzlings. Meh. <laughs> Nephesis. <laughs> Nephesis. No, ne- I don't like that one. Uh, and niefus. No. <laughs> no, I like nieflings. I, I think it just sounds cute. My my little nieflings. But uh, um, I'm sort of envious that uh, in German you have Geschwisterkind. <laughs> oh, wow. Geschwisterkind. <laughs> yeah. Do, do any of those appeal to you, Emily? Oh, nibblings! I wrote down. I I love that. <laughs> you like nibblings? Very adorable. Yeah, <laughs> yeah because if you if you really love your nieces and nephews, there's something about nibbling on their little tootsies. Oh, right? they're, they're, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's something about the long e nieflings that I really like. So a lot of these have been proposed. None of them have caught on, unfortunately. Who knows? Maybe one day they'll catch on. Certainly it's much discussed, and usually when something is discussed, something is resolved. We'll find out, I guess, in 50 or 60 years, maybe 100. Well, maybe if I start using it, it can touch on a bit. (laughs) There we go. Exactly. So stay tuned. Thanks for your call, Emily. All right. Take care. Thank you so much. All righty. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Foreign languages seem to have solved this. I, we got an email a while back from Ole Christian Rudstaten, and he says here in Norway we have the two words, I'm going to mispronounce these, pardon me, Uncle Lunger and Tante Lunger, which basically mean <laughs> uncle kids and aunt kids, because the gender is based oh, on sure. your gender, mm-hmm. not the kid's gender. So you describe them as, yeah, right. So you, yeah. It's, it's like, about the relationship to you through another person. Right. It's like more, more and far, far in uh, Swedish. Which I love. More, more and far, far. The best right? names ever, right? <laughs> so that's mother's mother and father's mother. Right. right. Yeah. 
Uh, he says they also have Norwegian words for niece and nephew, of course. And the word cousin is suskabarn, which basically means siblings, children. Pretty cool, right? Nice. Yeah. Thanks for that email, Oli Rudstatten. We we also welcome your emails about anything that you hear on the show, or if you've got something you want us to talk about. Words at waywardradio.org. Thanks to senior producer Stephanie Levine, director Colin Tedeschi, editor Tim Felton, and production assistant Tamar Wittenberg. You can send us a message, subscribe to the podcast, get the newsletter, or catch up on hundreds of past episodes at waywardradio.org. Our toll-free line is always open in the U.S. and Canada, 877-929-9673. Or send us your thoughts to words at waywardradio.org. Away With Words is an independent production of Wayward, Inc., a nonprofit supported by listeners and organizations who are changing the way the world talks about language. We're coming to you from the Recording Arts Center at Studio West in San Diego, California. Thanks for listening. I'm Grant Barrett. And I'm Martha Barnett. Until next time, goodbye. Bye. Bye.